Well, today's topic is man and sin, and um, I've had a chance to kind of review this one. This is probably one of the most um, practical and I would say politically charged doctrines that we encounter in this day and age, and I think you'll see what I mean. So what is man? This question has enormous implications. How we answer this question will determine our mission in life, our view of mortality, how we relate to other humans and the world around us. Consider how each of the following definitions would impact one's goals, moralities, and relationships. So if somebody were to say man is the most highly evolved animal on the planet, um, how would that impact somebody's goals, morality, and relationships? What do you guys think? I can do whatever I want as long as it doesn't mean good or we don't good. So I can get away with anything because if it's a matter of evolution and power, mm. then I can harm whoever, do whatever I want. And as long as I get away with it, nobody can tell me that it's morally or objectively yeah. evil. Yeah, you guys ever heard of Frederick Nietzsche? Nietzsche, however you want to pronounce it? Uh, he had this whole concept of, of the Ubermensch, the Uberman, that. Um, Morality keeps people weak, and so if you jettison that, men could reach their their true potential. And so a lot of that is what fueled um, some of the Nazi thought, right? So strength would be definitely a value. Other thoughts on man being the most highly evolved animal on the planet? Mm-hmm. Think they're invincible? Like what and how does that come out? I, I agree with you. Okay. I do. <laughs> There's many right answers to this question, by the way. But yeah, I mean how does this idea of invincibility or or arrogance come out? I guess that like right now we know what's best. Like as we continue we continue to know what's best. So mm -hmm. like what they might have thought before. I mean, we're best now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's kind, kind of, of a presentism. Yeah. You know, that whatever's pre whatever's current is the best in the, the right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's also a, like if, you, if there's also a, there's the distinction between all the other animals. It's just we're the most highly evolved. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a sort of you can see it played out in like tying mankind to nature to animals to mm -hmm. um, say we're, we're basically the same thing just evolved life mm -hmm. so there is a relationship with animals right yeah there's a, it strips away the the, the image, of god, image bearer of god that just says okay you know, you're, you're all just randomly existing mm -hmm. it fails, fails to account for the fact that there's something unique <coughs> about humankind and that kind of implies that other animals might get there someday, might evolve okay. to that status. Yep. Yep. Other thoughts? It kind of makes the why we do things kind of just like, oh, it's instinct. I've evolved this way. The reason that I do it is because uh -huh. I'm a hunter, so I go hunt. Yeah, you guys, are you guys ever familiar with the the field of evolutionary psychology basically traces all of instinct to how we survived in the past 
And so, why do men look at pornography? Well, our evolution programs us to look for as many mates as possible, right? So that we could reproduce at a higher rate or whatever, right? So there's a lot of um, justification for why we do what we do is because it helped us to survive. And so whatever base instincts we have are really good things for, for the perpetuation of the species. Yeah, and I think there's a certain, when you say uh, highly evolved, there's a certain sense in which um, there's a belief that the direction of history has been progress, that man mm -hmm. is the best he has ever been now. That the further you go back, the worse off he was. The further yeah. you go forward, the better he's going to get. Yeah, and there's kind of a philosophical thought to this. It's called the uh, Hegelian dialectic. And it's kind of this idea of, um, you know, that, you know, mankind, you know, you kind of have like a, kind of like a pendulum that kind of goes, that will go to, let's say, this extreme, you know, where there's kind of maybe, and then there's a kind of a reaction to this extreme. I kind of understand how this all works out. So um, the idea is that there's something called eternal progress. And so this would be, let's say, the, the basis of, let's say, Marxist thought, where uh, those of you who are reading through Brave New World are going to be familiar with all of this. So um, the idea is that you get one idea that gets taken to some extreme, and then there's kind of a, a backlash against that idea. And then there's a backlash against that idea, and it doesn't go quite as far. Then there's a backlash against that idea. And so the idea is that this pendulum goes back and forth and is always progressing so that we're getting more sophisticated and more moral in time. And so um, it's not based off of, let's say, a morality that comes from the outside, but a morality that comes from trial and error. Right? So there's all, you know, there's an, a perpetual improvement that's just built into human society. Not sure if that makes sense. And so, let's say, um, you know, for a long time, at the beginning of the century, you had Marxists, which basically said that there's class warfare based off of economic systems, right? And so there's a revolution that happens and new people get into power to do throw the old aristocracy. And then there's another war where you throw out those bums and it kind of reverts back this way, and you say you have new groups in power, and then they throw out those bums, and they have another group in power, but the people in power get progressively more virtuous in time. So that would be maybe an example of it. Is that yeah. kind of tracking with you? We're not going to agree with this, right? No, we don't. This is severely flawed. Yeah. yeah, and this is a very secular way of looking at humanity. That humanity is, is always self-improving. Right, and is always going in this kind of positive direction. And so when you hear phrases like the right side of history, that in the future, that's kind of what they're talking about, is this Hegelian uh, dialectic. That these people will be thrown out, and then they will get thrown out, and then they'll get thrown out, and so there's this perpetual revolution thing that's going on. But that would be part of the evolutionary trend and the upward trend of society, which assumes that man is virtuous and, and good. Does that make sense? Kind of like a missing link, isn't it? 
it's to a certain extent, it's, yeah, it's, it's almost like societal. It's kind of like societal evolution, yeah. <coughs> you look at today and how we were before, today's even worse. Yeah, but they would say that because it's today, it's better. Right? Because it's today, it's better. And because we are where we are, and like evolution, because we've survived, whatever we do is better. Right? Survival of the fittest. If we weren't this way, we wouldn't have survived. So it's the same thing with society. Pretty interesting thought, huh? Yeah. So a brave new world is based on the rise or of Or a strange new world, I'm sorry. A strange new world. Uh -huh. It's based on the rise and triumph of the modern self. Yeah. Um, and the rise and triumph of the modern self says that specifically due to evolutionary, like this whole concept of we're the most highly evolved animal on the planet, um, and this concept of um, like self-spiritualism, mm -hmm. if we are to evolve to the highest level, if we are the highest pursuit, then the reason why telling people no, you can't be a woman if you're a man, mm -hmm. or no, you can't, you know, or vice versa, or yeah. no, you can't be a dog, you're a human. Mm -hmm. Like, at that point, um, the reason that's so offensive is it's because it's targeting those people's gods, which mm -hmm. is themselves, because when you uh, adhere to a concept of self evolution and self improvement, yeah. the only thing that you go to worship is yourself. And yeah. so there's this concept of like your, your internal spiritualism. People reject religion as a whole and they start to worship themselves. Yeah. And so that's the reason why fundamentally it's so evil, quote unquote, in today's world to tell somebody, no, you can't do something because that's challenging their religion. That's mm -hmm. challenging the very core of yeah. who they are spiritually and as a human because they're nothing if not what mm -hmm. they tell themselves, yeah. which is like, yeah, this internalization of it all. Yeah, so this, I mean, this Hegelian dialectic is, is something where there's always constant change, like Beck and I were talking the other day that Black Lives Matter, you don't hear about that any, anymore, right? Now it's Trans Lives Matter. And there's always like a new movement, a new revolution, a new protest, where it's all about trying to get to this. And, and this is, will actually go, you know, technically speaking, this is supposed to go on forever. They'll never actually arrive at the absolute truth. But this is a way of describing how society progresses and changes, right? Which is very different from the biblical worldview, which is Jesus will come back and make everything right. And there's a right and wrong that's a standard, and it's conformity to the standard, not you know, trial and error with different people in power. Um, but yeah, I mean, how do you organize? You know, if you see man as just the highest form of evolution. Evolutionary thought and theory like this is what really um, describes society and the proof is in the pudding, right? Because we're around. It must work. Right? And this because we seem to be going in this direction, you know, that's the way that we improve. It's it's almost a moving target and you don't quite know what the middle part will be. Um, but you believe you'll get there as opposed to being organized around being a creative being. Okay. So here, how about this? Uh, man is a vehicle for an immortal soul. When he dies, karma will dictate which vehicle carries the soul in the next life. A cockroach or a king. So you guys ever, any of you ever believe in karma? Was that ever something that appealed to you guys? Maybe not. Karma. Karma? Okay, well karma is a belief that um, what you did in the past life and past lives dictates how you live right now. 
and what you do in this life will dictate how you'll be reincarnated in the future. Does that make sense? I'm not saying you agree with it, but but that's kind of like you know when you believe in reincarnation. Um, yeah, what you do if you do good and you're a really really good person, then you'll get a you'll be a celebrity in the next life. If you're a bad person, uh, you become a cockroach in the next life. Yeah, I've heard people use it also like just in your current life. They'll say, oh, that's karma catching up with you. You know, you you committed evil here, and then this bad thing happened to you. Yeah. because of your karma. Yeah, they're building up their karma. I'm karma. I'm doing good here so that good will come back. Yeah, it's a transactional thing. Very yeah. transactional. So whatever good you you act on will somehow return to you. Whatever evil you do will somehow yeah. everything will. Yeah, free. Wasn't it a way just to kind of justify and reinforce the caste system? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. don't worry, your your time will come. Yeah, but I earned this birthright. Well. Yeah. yeah. I feel like more modernly, instead of karma, people use the universe. Mm -hmm. Put it out into the universe, mm -hmm. and the universe will give you good vibes. Manifest. Send you sending you good vibes. Yeah, send out good vibes. Yeah, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm sending vibrations, right? Beach Boy song, right? Good vibrations. Like. <coughs> Yeah, and karma actually is, is tricky, right? So let's say you have, uh, you live, you know, this is bad life, bad life, bad life, then good life. Um, it could be that, you know, this good life that you have right now, that you're enjoying, is basically because of all the suffering or whatever you had in your past good lives past lives. So there's, even if you live like, even if you're Gandhi, per se, you can still be a cockroach in the next life because you still have all these bad things to pay for. And the thing is, all of these bad lives, they go back eternally. So there's almost no point when you really think about karma to really do good in this life, knowing that you have any, an eternity of lives in the past, and you don't know if you're good or bad then. <coughs> And you can even argue that this is, you know, when you compare humanity to all the other species, this is your best life, right? So, do you think you're going to get a promotion from this life to another one? You don't really know. But that's, uh, yeah, that's why it really is a dead-end theory when you think about it. Um, but how does this view of karma maybe impact the way we see the world, or people see the world, see? Yeah shows that they internally have a confidence and a desire for justice. Yeah. Because somehow it needs to happen, and mm -hmm. God, there's evidence, therefore it's true. Yeah. Kind of just circumstantial, but therefore it must be true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Doesn't Nancy Piercy in her book Love Thy Body talk about the divide between, like the danger of the divide between soul and body? So if it, mm -hmm. the body's just a vehicle, yeah. then there's no reason to to protect it, if if there's like if you yeah. can be a human but not a person, um, because your body and your soul are two different things, then why not mutilate or murder or whatever? Okay. Because you can, it doesn't really matter. The soul is a separate being from the from the body. It doesn't. Yeah. It's just a vehicle, so you can uh -huh. crash this car and get hop a ride in your next one. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but as long as you divide like the body and the soul, then you're gonna dis like dishonor all mm-hmm. of you because you're not valuing mm-hmm. all of who and what you are, and so anything can be uh, any atrocity can be permitted because they're not again they're not the same. Yeah. Yeah. Can you get a burger in India? No, because they won't kill any of the cows. Right? So that's kind of an interesting thing. It's like how you look at the animal kingdom changes because yeah, that could be grandpa. Right? He wouldn't kill a fly because that might be grandma. Right? So there is kind of a, you know, it basically kind of levels the distinction between man and the rest of the animal kingdom. Uh, how about man is a sophisticated composition of mass and energy? How would that impact the way you live and decisions you make? And it's meaningless. Yeah. Yeah, Becky was telling me about her cousin who um, actually discovered a, you know, was going to go out with this older gentleman, and the older gentleman didn't answer the door, and he went in and found him dead. Really shook him up. And he told his dad about him. The conclusion of both of them was, you know, life sucks. And so that's just the whole point of life, right? It's just we just live in one great tragedy. And life sucks is another way of saying vanity of vanity, right? All, all is in vain, right? There is no rhyme, reason, or purpose for just a cosmic accident. But I even think about um, looking at the animal world. How would this view? How would these people view the animal world? Probably go both ways. You like esteem them highly because they're like the same as you, or mm-hmm. like they're just massive. Yeah. Massive. Yeah, I remember watching a video of an activist going into a San Francisco restaurant and confronting everyone about eating chicken and how she had a pet chicken who just wanted to live. And these chickens wanted to live too, and you took their life from them, and now you're eating them. Right? So don't eat in San Francisco, by the way. You never know what kind of crazy things will happen. But you know what I'm saying? Like, if you. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just kind of vent. <laughs> <laughs> when I see action movies, and the whole family is out of, let's say, a burning house safely, and then the kid says, the dog. And they say, we better go back and risk our lives to save the dog. Just once, let that stupid person die for saving the dog. So that everyone will realize the dog's not worth it. <laughs> right? The dog's not worth it. Right? And, and that's something where um, I think uh, there's been an explosion of pet ownership. And I'm going to quote Lord Dorsey here. He says, you know, not all... Not all. Uh, not all people. Not all. Pets. Not only pet. O- not all pet owners are crazy, right. but all crazy people own pets. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so not all pet owners are crazy, but all crazy people own pets. And there's almost this idea where children have been replaced by dogs or cats. Or, do you know what I'm saying? Like the the value of animals for companions and the humanity that we give them is. Yeah, like a, a relative referred to her cat 
as Becky's uncle. <laughs> right? No, they're not. Right? Or, or even the false equivalent where people treat, you know, for me, losing my dog was like losing a son. Okay, I know I'm kind of treading on some people here, but it's necessary. It's not. They're not the same. They're not the same. You know, uh, humans are unique in every sense of the word. We're, we're not just necessarily the most highly evolved human on the planet. Um, we're not some sort of cosmic accident. I mean, what you, what you believe about humanity, and really that's one of the issues uh, that we're dealing with in our society, is what is a human and what is a human worth and what gives a human value, right? So abortion, how does that play into this debate? Why does it matter? Why is it bad? In any yeah. Sense? Yeah. Why? Why would you say abortion is wrong? Is that an actual question? Or yeah. Just let, oh. Yeah. Well, I believe it's because we all have inherent value because yeah. we're all people created in God's image. But yeah. <laughs> but mm -hmm. if you don't believe that, then there's really there isn't a reason. Yeah. Humans are creating God God's image. They earn title protection. So here's another one: euthanasia. Right. So what would be the argument for euthanasia? If you believe that, you know, man is just the most highly evolved animal on the planet. Well, if you have an overpopulation of an animal, the solution is to get rid of the excess. Yeah. yeah. Have any of you guys put your dogs to sleep? Right. Why? Because that was the humane thing to do. So if we put dogs to sleep. Would it make sense that we can put people to sleep? Right? Do, do you see that? And, and where does that logic break down? From a Christian point of view, right, it breaks down because man was made in the image of God, and you treat dogs and animals and humans differently, right? Yeah, we're, we're distinct. Uh, another uh, element is um, transgenderism, right? Man is made in the image of God. Therefore, do we have the right to, um, I'd say, surgically manipulate—I'll uh, even say mutilate—our you know, bodies to conform to our inner expression? You see what I'm saying? Versus being fearfully and wonderfully made. So when you look at a lot of this, you know, what is a man? Is a highly uh, political concept. You know, because it's about how do we relate to men? How are men to relate to God? How do we even relate to ourselves as somebody's made in the image of God? And so that's why this is uh, what you believe about um, anthropology, biblical anthropology, is very determinative as far as all of these other areas of thought. Okay. Any questions about that? So we're going to look at uh, you know the study of man, and then we're going to get into kind of the fall of man and the nature of sin, which is kind of a derivative of it. So we'll look at the creation composition of man. So we want to read Genesis 2, 7 for me. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> All right, so a few observations are in order. Number one, the Lord himself took charge of the creation of man. So we are a personal creation. 
So why is it important to remember that God created us? What does this imply about how we should relate to God? Why is it important to remember that God created us? That we are a creation? It does not mean that we are in total control. Okay, it means that we're not in total control. Flesh out that logic a little bit more. So it doesn't mean we are the masters of our own destiny or we decide what is good and right. We don't determine our morals or ethics. Mm -hmm. It's all predetermined. And we are to obey Mm -hmm. because we are tenants or servants. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we we intrinsically understand that you you have the creator is greater than creation, right? And even we have we have an understanding that when you create something, like if I were to build, uh, you know, that podium, right? That would actually belong to me because it's my creation, right? So it kind of makes sense that one of the doctrines that's to be denied is that we actually belong to a creator, or that the creator has actual expectations over us, and expects us to live a certain way. Does that make sense? So that is one thing to remember, is that we are direct creation of God. We know from Psalm 139 that we are each fearfully and wonderfully made. So all of us, even in a fallen state, have been crafted and created by God. We are to look the way we do. We have the number of hairs that we have because of God's personal creation over us. So second point, God did not create man ex nihilo, out of nothing. Rather, he formed him out of already existent materials. God the potter took a lump of clay and skillfully formed man. So observations one and two grade against any notion that man evolved from monkeys. In addition, as with the rest of creation, God deemed the result of his craftsmanship to be good, right? So man did not (coughs) evolve out of monkeys. If men did evolve out of monkeys, what would be some implications of that? It would still be happening. It would still be happening, okay. I think that I think that I could be wrong. I feel like evolutionists don't say that we evolved from monkeys. I think they say that we evolved from like a common ancestor. Yeah. But even who evolved from a monkey? Um. But even that holds the same connotations. Yeah. Yeah. So there's always. I mean, in the news, apparently there's a one hundred thousand year old you know body where. There was a common ancestor, and there were, there were tools or whatever, and, and naturally they show the picture of what this man looked like, and it looked like half man, half monkey, right? So they're always looking for the transitional uh, species, but I mean, the missing link hasn't been found to this day in any compelling way, because he doesn't exist. So man does not become a living being until God breathes life into him. And this has some important ramifications, right? Death occurs when the breath of life leaves the body, right? When the person stops breathing, right? There's a loss, you know, that's when they've passed over. Then man is a body and a spirit. If man lacks either of these, he's no longer a man, right? So body and soul together. Um, And that's why it's interesting, like, to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord, there is a sense that 
you know, we, we can exist independent of our body, but God's design is the future resurrection of the body, right? Where we are going to be body and soul in heaven forever. Then you have man as the image of God. Somebody will read Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and, and over all the earth, mm-hmm. and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Okay, thank you. So when you hear that term, image of God, what comes to your mind? So we're to ask you, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What would you say? We resemble God in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like I like to say, have any of you guys actually seen Tom Cruise? Have you seen Tom Cruise? Seen yeah, have you seen, you've seen images. But you haven't seen Tom Cruise. Maybe some of you might have seen him in real life at one point in time. But so that's um, so when you look at this idea of image, it's a it's a representation of God. And so there's a lot of debate about what that means. Um, you know, one one theory would be that um, you know we are you know God has certain attributes. He has a will, he has compassion, he has love, he has emotional complexity. And because God is that way, we are that way as well. Does that make sense? But one of the problems with that is, you know, God is just so far and highly above us that you can just go on and on about the differences for how do you kind of determine, you know, the you know, where, where does God, you know, what parts about God do we, can we truly overlap with? Um, but then I think there's another part where, you know, the image of God also means that, you know, God himself, in the form of Jesus Christ, took on that image as well, right? So there, there pro- and we'll talk a little bit more about this, there, there is a key difference between, you know, Jesus did not incarnate into an orangutan or a dolphin, right? But into a man, and it was able to express his godness in human form. But I think the the primary uh, understanding of the fear of man, I think some of these other things kind of fit under this rubric, is the call that God had was to be fruitful and multiply, to rule and to subdue the earth, right? He made them in his image. And I'll just read you this quote here. Traditional interpretation of the doctrine of the Imago Dei, image of God, proposed that man is God's image in the sense that he shares much of what God is. That is, man, like God, has personality, intelligence, feeling, and will. Uh, to be in God's image is indeed to be Godlike, though obviously in a highly nuanced and restricted sense. The difference between the transcendent God and mortals are so vast, however, as to require a better explanation of Imago Dei the focus is not so much on ontological, that's the nature of being equivalent, as on functional comparison. So the following verse strengthens this point. So verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing on the earth. And so the idea is, 
God has delegated what to man, according to this verse? Dominion, right? Rule, right? They, they are to rule on his uh, behalf. And there are some ancient customs where whenever a, a land was conquered, uh, they'd often erect a statue of the king. And the idea was this king is presiding over this place, right? It's, it's symbolic authority. And so mankind, we often, you know, we basically rule this planet on behalf of God. Right? So we are the ones who are to rule and to subdue it. And all of those attributes that we have, like I looked up smartest plant, smartest animal, and there's a lot of debate. You, know, you got the dolphins, you got the chimpanzees, but I think probably the smartest one would be the orangutan, right? And orangutans are, you know, they, they have demonstrated that they can actually maybe take a tool and use it to maybe dig something. Uh, when it rains, they might you know, try to construct some sort of canopy and sit under it. They, they will learn some sign language and communicate, you know, you know, more, please, thank you. I mean, all that stuff. But with that established, right, what are the differences between an orangutan and humans? I feel like with orangutans or even other smart animals, you can trace all of their motives and all of their learnings to purely survival. Okay. Like the things, the things that they want to accomplish are purely for their own personal mm -hmm. survival. Yeah. Whereas humans have the ability to forego that instinct to need to survive and put others before mm -hmm. their own okay. primal need to survive. Yeah, the concept of sacrifice. Yeah. What are some other differences? for morality. Uh-huh. Um, so dolphins are utter psychopaths. Um, yeah. They're monsters. I, I hate dolphins with a passion. But um, they're much like otters. But what, how are dolphins... Okay. Let's go back. <laughs> how are dolphins psychopaths? They will murder and violate other animals. And they'll, they'll like, brutalize certain, like, pufferfish and hit them, um, playing using them as balls in order to get high from the from the sting of the puffer fish. They will um, do unspeakable things in groups that I would be inappropriate to speak about at a church. Did the they get tatted up too? Or? Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that just offended you guys with tattoos. You know, animals never get tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> is this an attack on me because I have tattoos? No, I mean, <laughs> anything. Um, but yeah, so how can we, and uh, I hesitate to use this word, but can we blame dolphins and otters for raping and murdering one another? Mm -hmm. No, they don't, they don't lack, they, they lack yeah. the basic capacity for an understanding of morality. Yeah. It is, it, it is, it's kind of more building off of what she said. Yeah. Um, it, it's, they don't have anything outside of that personal seeking just for yeah. the next stimulant, which mm -hmm. is a little bit unfortunately like, you know, we are now due to our yeah. addiction to certain things. But in general, yeah. you know, we have the capacity to understand morality of things. Yeah. Whereas a dolphin, 
raping and murdering another dolphin, wh why does it matter? Yeah. It doesn't have the capacity to realize yeah. it's wrong, yeah. whereas humans do. Yeah, chimpanzees are also very savage. Like, they live in little colonies, but you don't want to be a chimpanzee. <laughs> they also terrible. haven't populated the whole Earth. Yeah. They're, They're limited to certain habitats. Mm -hmm. And here's the difference. The habitat of, of um, yeah, the orangutans, mainly in Indonesia. But if you go to Indonesia, right, you don't necessarily find humans in a cage and everybody looking at them, right? It's, unless you're to watch Planet of the Apes, but we all know that. <laughs> but you know, that's, that's something where um, yeah, we're able to capture any animal and put them on display. We can actually make habitat. Like one, one miracle where people should have no business living in this city is Phoenix, Arizona. You ever thought about that? Like it's a city of three to four million people in the metropolitan area in the middle of a desert. Right? If you were to go back 300 years, there'd be like National Geographic stories of like these lizards who found a way to make some habitat out in the desert by you know, licking the underside of a rock on cool mornings, right? And we have golf courses, houses, air conditioning. I mean, the technology and the ingenuity that humans have, like to say that orangutans are close because they can do this and this, I mean, that's, there really is no comparison. I mean, man is just next level up as far as our, our capability. And, and you even look at, let's say, some special needs kids. They're still way more intelligent right, than an orangutan, right? They can speak. You even look at literacy and the alphabet, the fact that we can actually, somebody took sounds and assigned letters to them and then wrote them down in script and then taught other people to do that so that we can read the same sentence all the way around the world, uh, that there's multiple languages. I mean, the difference between hum humans and, and animals as much as we might like our dogs or whatever, and maybe ascribe to them certain personality traits, uh, it is overwhelmingly huge. All right, there's no comparison. Well, even then, like when you think that an animal has learned a, its name or could see a, hear a sound and do something, that's all classical conditioning trained by us. It mm -hmm. wasn't something that they woke up one morning and decided they were going to learn on their own. Yeah, I mean, you think dogs learn Spanish. It's all about the tone, right? It's all about the tone. They, they know. Right, so there is, I mean, technology, using our brains, even some of the science fiction movies where we take on these large animals, those large monsters, you know, humans can somehow find a way to, like, take them out. I mean, so there is a, um, you know, man is more than a highly involved species. I mean, there, there is such a gap between us and next level. It's, uh, it is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah, so... That is man made in the image of God, and, and I think he's given us all of those abilities, right, for the purpose of ruling. Does that make sense? So there are some unique differences between us and animals, but it's in the service of this larger mandate to rule and subdue the earth, to make cities like Phoenix where there shouldn't be a city. Okay? So let's get into what went wrong. We'll talk about the fall of man. So Genesis chapter 3, after the origin of man, we have the origin of sin. And 
there is the test in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. Somebody want to read that? The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Okay, so it's a very simple test, right? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there was really, um, this wasn't the only rule in the garden, right? The first rule was be fruitful and multiply and rule and subdue the earth, right? That was the, that's the primary objective. But as they do it, they are pretty much tested for their obedience here, right? Do all of this stuff, but just don't eat from this tree. This is reserved for God alone. And, um, yeah, there was, a, I guess, maybe a certain kind of knowledge that they were not to be uh, privy to, right? Good and evil. They were to know good, because all creation was good. But the evil part, that was set aside. Then you get into the temptation. Somebody want to read uh, 3, 1 through 5? No, the so, serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden you may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay. So here are some of the sources of temptation. And one, Satan raised doubt concerning God's word, right? Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from the tree of, uh, of any tree of, of the garden. Right? Is that true? All right. That would be an exaggeration. There's one tree. That's it. But he said, any tree? Satan lied by saying that they would not die. And, and this is interesting where the doctrine of judgment, that is the first doctrine denied in the Bible. Right? Judgment is denied. Right? And you look at even human religion, what do people have the biggest problem with? It's the idea that God would actually judge people, that he actually expects you to do what he says. Uh, Satan told a partial truth. He told them that they would be like God, knowing good and evil, right? But what he didn't tell them would be about the pain, suffering, and death, that they would not only know it, but know it in the fullest, well, maybe not the fullest sense, but in a far more full and complete sense than they anticipated when she took the fruit. And then... So in what ways does Satan impugn God's character, uh, let's say in modern thought and culture, right? So you see what he's doing here is something that he continues to do. I mean, how does, how does Satan impugn God's thought or God's uh, character in modern thought and culture? What do you guys think? Called God a liar. Called God a liar, right? How? I mean, what is the modern conception of God? Like, if you were to bring up the biblical God, God of the Bible, you know, to your unbelieving friends, 
What would be their take on him? Why would God give that temptation in the first place? Like, why would he create mm-hmm. that tree in the first place? Yeah, so there'd be some skepticism about his justice, right? If his justice was so swift, why didn't he just take out Satan before yep. it became a problem? Yeah, so there's kind of armchair gar- godding going on here, right? Yeah. kind of want to judge the thought of God mm-hmm. with their own logic and say, well, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if it doesn't make sense to me, then that, doesn't, that shouldn't make sense to anyone. Yeah. You know, they kind of use their own, their own version of logic, their own self-centered yeah. kind of concept to be able to evaluate someone who is mm-hmm. not subject to that. <laughs> Yeah, so that's really interesting how there's this instinct to judge his intellect and his plan according to your own, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's a there's a, a channel I watched when I was younger. There's some Christian guys and Blind Geek out. They had this funny episode. They talked about. Um, they said if you don't like being a Christian, we recommend Ian to you. Um, and it's all without all that pesky side baggage, mm-hmm. um, and you you know, Ian doesn't judge you for partying, but Ian also is with you when you judge others for partying. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, you know, like it was being said, we take out the Christ out of Christian, and we're like, you know, mm-hmm. that other gotcha. stuff that's too heavy. Like God commanded somebody to strike his son down, like. Yeah. That's not my God. Yeah. I choose to believe in a God who wouldn't do that. I choose to believe in a God who's okay with trans, with mm-hmm. you know, who who supports trans lives. Yeah. Um, and so you know, it's not Christian. It's it's not Christ. It's just Ian. Ian. Yeah. Um, no, that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, I think when you look at um, oh man, oh, man, I've always kind of brought this up before. I mean, there's really two visions of God, right? You know, there's God, who is over man, and then there is man, who is supported by God, right? So, God is there when you need him, in case of emergency, break the glass, he won't impose on you. This version of God actually expects obedience and compliance from man, and when he doesn't get it, it's met with judgment, right? This God feels the freedom to tell you what to do because he created you, right? You, you belong to him. For this view of God is just there when you support him, right? So when Satan goes after um, you know, God of the Bible, did God, do you really want him over you? Do you really want him to know good and evil and, and not you? Is he really this restrictive, right? Is to make you discontent with this relationship and to maybe liberate yourself so that you're in charge of your own universe. And that's been the project of a lot of humanistic thinking is to move away from religion and all those things that are too confining. Right? So that's why a God who actually expects you to do what he says is an anathema to people who practice this kind of religion. Does that make sense? Right, and that does come out in the garden. Any other thoughts? 
Do you guys see other ways that this this dynamic comes out? How it's expressed in our day and age? I think, uh, like when stood out to me today, like in his when he starts out, that he says, you know, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So he he begins his uh, kind of assault with a with a misrepresentation of what God has said that's not true. Mm-hmm. And so in the mind of of Eve, you know, she has to determine one. Has God said that? And then is that? So I think sometimes we, that attack, we have people that will pose a, the description of God that misrepresents the biblical God, mm-hmm. and it's something that that is indeed they're they're correct on, or it's a it's a mm-hmm. good challenge, mm-hmm. but it's not actually the God of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so that whole strategy of well, you know, if God were this way, then. This would be true, but it's not. So, mm-hmm. and so there's a sense of well, we have to throw God out instead of point, kind of point out that that's yeah kind of that. Well, I don't believe in that God either. That's yeah, not, that's not the God of the Bible. Yeah, and I would say if you're to have a little prefix, like this one would be the God, and this one would be my God. Does that make sense? Where the God, it doesn't matter what you think about him; it's who he is. Versus my God is here to support me. And, and there can often be, like you were mentioning, it, it, when we all naturally kind of ascribe to God as being you know, a more powerful version of ourselves, having the same morality, the mm-hmm. same, um, to, to allow God to define himself through scriptures is difficult to even explain in a conversation and say, well, mm-hmm. I don't get to determine who. Because I've had several conversations where you know your God is this way because you're that way, mm-hmm. right? Your God hates this because you hate these, you know. So mm-hmm. whatever the social issue is, by their mind, right? God is what it's basically a reflection of you. Yeah. And so whoever, whatever your God's like, that's just because you. Yeah, I mean Tim Keller is quote as saying, and I'll I'll see if I can get this right. If your vision of God and your version of God never disapproves or disagrees with you, then maybe that's not God so much as a glorified version of you. Does that make sense? Well, we'll go ahead and like end there. We'll talk about the results of sin next week. Let me pray and I'll let you guys go. Well, Father, I thank you for uh, this opportunity to just talk about some significant worldview issues, and we thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that you created us in your image, and as image bearers, I pray that we will reflect you to all the creation, that we'll leverage the skills and abilities that you've given us to carry out your will and purposes on earth. As we transition to the next part of our worship service, I pray that you will just refresh us with your word, whether it comes through singing, through communion, and through reading, and through listening, and through the preaching. In Christ's name, amen.